0: Hello and welcome to the Spike Podcast. I'm Fraser Myers, and back with me this week, as ever, we have Spike's editor, Tom Slater. Hello. And Spike columnist, Ella Whelan. Hi. Coming up on the show, the war on woke, the Hungarian revolt, and the Black Lives Matter mansion. So this week, Prime Minister Boris Johnson made his clearest comments yet on the clash between women's rights and trans rights. In an interview, he said that women should be allowed to have single-sex spaces separate from males. He said that women should be allowed to compete in women-only sports. He even suggested that children may not be competent to make decisions about their gender, at least without parental input. I mean, Tom, really, this is just basic common sense, but in our very strange era, this this comes across as quite significant.
1: And I think it was intended as significant as well. I mean, in the interview clip itself, he's being asked about something else entirely, partly Mm -hmm. about the background to this, being asked about whether or not he's going to bring back in the ban on trans conversion therapy, that whole... Craig Meyer, i'm sure we'll get into a little bit later on and he launches into this making these three points as you've just set out around gillick competency for kids and um gender reassignment treatments of any kind single sex spaces and and biological males in women's sports and all the rest of it so it's it's very clearly intended as a clear kind of staking out of the position mm. for the tory party um he's no doubt going to catch a lot of flack um from his own back benches as much as anyone else for for doing so um, but it is very welcome insofar as um, what I think you're seeing staked out here is is a pretty liberal, understandable way through what is being presented as a complete nightmare insofar mm-hmm. as the questions of gender identification, around the questions of um, women's rights, single sex spaces. Um, and it lays a real trap for Labour because they've been trying to stick to this line, which is really to just sort of vacillate on the particular question, to to appear to be much more on the kind of gender identity side of things, shall we say. You know, Keir Starmer not being able to say that only women have a cervix, suggesting that that's the wrong thing to say. But at the same time, feeling very nervous in really Mm. properly making that argument, as we were talking about last week, kind of sense that they don't actually necessarily believe it, probably. But still not being, clearly being keen not to upset uh, the sort of identitarian um set on these particular issues. So I think it you're right, it is essentially just common sense. I think it's a welcome intervention. But the fact that it even needed to be made at all is telling. And the fact that people are talking about the Tories um getting some sort of benefit out of this, that's probably is going to be the case. But at the same time, the reason that it is a benefit, the reason that again just kind of saying these what should be quite uncontroversial points, is such a significant intervention is because that's the ridiculous place that the debate has ended up. If you see what I mean, this isn't some low game of, you know, wedge politics or um, some genius piece of 3D chess. It's just given the, in the current situation, you know, even saying something as simple as that will mark you out as interesting and down to earth in comparison to a Labour Party (laughs) that's very lost on these issues.
0: I mean, one of the reasons these issues have come to a head is um, the government's recent decision to drop a proposed ban on conversion therapy for um, transgender people, do you want to explain a bit about the background to that row?
2: Yeah, well, it's a, the first thing to say is that it's a complete mess, and. The government is at fault for attempting first of all attempting to use this issue of banning conversion therapy as a means of kind of as it has done with actually a lot of stuff around trans whether it be the gender recognition act as a means of kind of signaling that it's doing something good Mm. um and then it you know it was sort of in a promise that it was going to bring it in then there was backlash so it took it out then there was backlash to the backlash they've it's it's come back forwards backwards and forwards lots of people very reasonably suggested that Hang on a minute. There's a difference between these kind of, you know, the horrendous things that we know happen in relation to gay conversion therapy, where people get sent to camps and electric shock therapy and all kinds of hor- horrific stuff, or even just that people are pestered endlessly to try and convince them that they're not gay. Now, that's very different from, for example, someone receiving counselling in relation to their gender dysphoria, or actually different from, you know, religious institutions or Pastors or rabbis mm. or whoever it is um talking to their uh talking about their religious beliefs you know lots of uh, religious people have an aversion to um not just transgender ideology but indeed homosexuality you know it's it's that's just a fact of life that that still remains and whether or not you think that's good whether you think that's moral um doesn't necessarily mean it should be illegal and so there's been this back backwards, backwards and forwards, and the government has finally sort of seems to have landed on this very unsatisfactory compromise which has really pissed off everyone about um, banning gay conversion therapy but leaving out the trans element of it and unsurprisingly it's led to the usual crowd suggesting that this is um, the most uh, obvious example of how the Tories have gone down a kind of right-wing dictatorship kind of horrendous attack on this is like end of days <laughs> yeah. um for not just trans people but for everyone it shows they're a liberal side um but it's really important to note that whether it's boris johnson talking about women-only spaces or ideas of sexual difference or any of this kind of stuff you know t- tom's right to say that this it is common sense but it also was broadly accepted by most people including the labor party just a number of years ago. Yeah. I mean, literally seven years ago. Like really in, in spitting distance in terms of time, the Labour Party was hammering the the Conservative government for not being serious and not signing up to things like women only quotas in the workplace. Yeah. Or whatever it was. And the idea of women perse- only short lists. Yeah, a, and that, that sexual difference candidates. was important because women were oppressed. That was the general mm. sort of feminist line. Feminist lines are now out of fashion and you have to now go along with um, the kind of trans ideology line. And so it just leaves you in the kind of, well, it's a ridiculous position because as much as I don't think the Tory party has handled this conversion therapy row right, and it, you know they should be able to differentiate between what's morally white, right and what should be legally permissible, um, no one really has a leg to stand on in this because it's such a mess.
0: So, Tom, I mean, is the government sort of... Uh fault for getting into this mess in the first place? I mean, why was the government even trying to host um, an LGBT conference, you know, celebrating its achievements when it knows it actually um, is quite uneasy with some of the proposals that are coming Mm -hmm. out of that lobby kind of
1: group? Well, it's all been very confusing because, of course, even the um, rows we've been having in recent years over gender self-ID and making it much easier for people to Um, again, identifies as a different gender to the one that they were born into. That was something which was initiated by the previous Tory administration. So Mm. the Tories have never really know where they are on these issues. And because on a lot of LGB or LGBT issues... Um, I think, I, d- I don't mean this to sound cynical, but they've often used this as a means to kind of um, do away with their nasty party image. Yeah. And that's why I think that's part of the large part why they've got themselves into a right muddle on the trans issue in particular, Not and also the fact that there's a lot of people in and around number 10 who are very down the kind of gender ideology rabbit hole and have some sway over the prime minister, not enough, it turns out, from their perspective, Um, that they've often got themselves into this sort of mess, um, which has always been strange because, you know, again, kind of going down this route was never going to win them plaudits, to be perfectly honest. They were were always going to be seen by many people in that kind of blob as um, still nefarious and bigoted and all the rest of it. But this particular thing around conversion therapy, it's hard not to see any aspect of it as not just an attempt to sort of virtue signal most forms of gay conversion therapy that people talk about, particularly the kind of physical stuff, is already illegal. Yeah. Um, this is, you know, as you say, what they were proposing or what could have come through could have actually been a problem from the question of kind of religious freedom and all the rest of it, if you get into that kind of area. And then you've got the trans part of it, which, as people have been telling the government for a very long time, is a much more complicated issue. Um, Interesting, this is a point that Bev Jackson from the LGB Alliance has, has made many times is that there's actually a point at which the ban on trans conversion therapy could become a problem for gay people itself yeah. that actually again, this kind of approach to gender dysphoria amongst children whereby you 're supposed to kind of affirm the identity that they believe themselves to be not to question it could in in itself become a form of gay conversion therapy given there's a substantial amount of young people. Um, who experience some form of gender dysphoria and then who later on um, get past it and just and happen to be gay as well. So, you know, there's, there's an element of this where you could be seen to essentially be endorsing, um, a, you know, again, kind of correcting gay people, which yeah. is another consideration. These things are not... Clear cut. This isn't the Tory Party. Just you know, <laughs> just kind of reverting to type. In it's some not way. Section 28 all over again, as exactly. people would like to make it out. To it's, be. it's nonsense. And there's been uh, this really unpleasant aspect to the discussion, which is to say, this is what the war on woke means. By which they mean it's basically a bigoted agenda. And I think those of us who are, um, again, very concerned about woke politics, spend a lot of time pushing back on it. We've really got to make clear, uh, the, certainly from Spite's perspective, the fundamental problem with all of these things around kind of woke politics is that. Is not that it's um, you know liberalism gone too far? Not that it's given you know these different uh, minorities or groups kind of too much power. It's that if anything, it's pushing in the other direction. It's regressive. Yeah. You know, a lot of these proposals would have a genuine uh, could have a genuinely destructive impact on same-sex attracted people. If we're talking about questions of race or or feminism or whatever, our fundamental critique is that the nature of the current current politics and policy either infantilizes or actually does not serve the best interests of these minority groups you claim to be, you know, um, fighting on behalf of. But I think the, the debate around it and how it just wants to try and present it as if it's the 1980s all over again shows either that people just haven't moved on and aren't paying mm. attention or that they're just conflating these two things because it serves their interests. And increasingly, I think it tends to be the latter, to be perfectly honest.
0: Definitely. Uh, one thing we didn't touch on um, was women's sport, but... If you are interested in that, you should definitely check out Sharon Davies talking to Brendan O'Neill. Sharon Davies is, of course, the famous Olympic swimmer, silver medalist in Moscow, 1980, who has been speaking up for a very long time about the problem of male bodied athletes in in women's sports. So do check that out on the Brendan O'Neill show. One thing I never want to stop doing is learning new things. I can spend hours binge learning with documentaries, lecture series, and more. So whether I want to learn more about the history of a place in the news at the moment, or I want to try learning a new language before I go on holiday abroad, Wondrium is my favourite go-to place to improve my understanding of the world. And because I'm often on the go, I love that with the Wondrium app, I can watch or listen to any episode, just like I would with a podcast. Wondrium has unlimited access to a huge collection of high-quality ad-free videos on virtually any topic you can imagine, all presented by top experts. For instance, I just watched one of Wondrium's newest shows, After the Plague, and I recommend you check it out too. It's got 24 in-depth, fact-based episodes about how the world came back from the brink of one of the most devastating catastrophes in history, the Black Death. It starts with how the plague spread in the 14th century and how people responded to the devastation it wreaked. And then it looks to all the political turmoil that followed, with episodes covering uprisings in England, France and Rome. But it's not all about death and politics. There are episodes on how the Black Death influenced literature, with the travels of Sir John Mandeville and Chaucer's The Canterbury Tales. I think you'll love it as much as I have. And when you're finished with it, why not check out all the other great content Wondrium has to offer? So, what are you waiting for? Sign up now through our special URL to start your free trial. Just go to wondrium.com slash spiked. Remember, that's wondriu mcom slash spiked. So let's move on to talk about Hungary. On Sunday, the Viktor Orban government won a surprising victory, I think it's fair to say. Polls leading up to the election showed that things could have been quite close. In the event, Orban actually increased his mandate and retained his uh, supermajority. Now, Tom, this election is, has a significance well mm. beyond Hungary, doesn't it?
1: I mean, it was certainly being built up that way. Um, the context for it, and I was out doing some reporting from Hungary in the weeks before the election took place, um, was very much around this kind of question of Hungary's um, right to go its own way, mm. um, essentially, which has taken on a new Sort of um, character in relation to Ukraine, but we can get into that it's a bit separate. But as, so, it's in the months beforehand, and in the years beforehand, really, Hungary's been locked into this very bitter row with uh, the European Union over various different issues, um, uh, allegations of it eroding the rule of law, uh, mm. quite quite democratic backsliding. It's come to a it's come to a head over the question of LGBT rights and this new law that they passed, which essentially bans the promotion of LGBT to children um, and. In response to that, there was this furious response from uh, the European Union, from just European member state leaders in general, essentially saying that they should be kicked out in some cases, or certainly at least deprived of funds. So there's there's about 7 billion euros which are currently being withheld, coronavirus recovery funds, from Hungary as well as Poland. And um, there was this ruling in February which basically upheld the legality of that particular measure. So that was the kind of context for this. Um and then on top of that you had a lot of hopes being piled on this from kind of Western European journalists, um, mm. that essentially this was the time which Orban, who's become the kind of noire of the EU, would be toppled. You had all of the coal- all of the opposition parties, um, bar a few, um, united from yeah. ex-fascists to ex-communists to try and topple Orban behind this um character, this kind of um, small town mayor called Peter Marquis. I was kind of presenting himself as kind of, you know, a social conservative, but one who would play ball with the European union. Um, and given those kind of dynamics, I think that, you know, the, the result was seemingly always going to go all bands away. It felt like because of the fact that, you know, you obviously have a population who are very sensitive to the idea that you've got an outside power (laughs) trying to dictate their way of life and how they should do things and an opposition which seemed to be a gift to that particular campaign, which was to say if we win, it will be a grand prize for the European Union and all the rest of it. So when when I was there, the sense was that, you know, Orban will probably cling on, but it was, you know, majority will probably be reduced. He won't have this super majority. But as you say, increased vote share, increased yeah. seats, still maintains that super majority, was already the longest serving leader in the EU and is now going into a fourth consecutive term. And I think it just really demonstrates that in, in Hungary in particular, but across Europe, there is still this bottom-up rejection of being pushed around by brussels it's yeah. not saying the Orbán government is perfect but stretch stretches the imagination <laughs> uh but at the same time it's it was quite clear that um the people of hungary re- saw brussels mm. as more of an imposition as a kind of anti-democratic imposition as anything orban has been accused of and i think the results reflect that in large part
0: yeah Ella. i mean this is you know an ongoing kind of tension between not just the eu and um Central and Eastern Europe, but also, you know, 10 years ago, we were talking about the the tensions between um, the EU and Southern Europe um, with Greece and Italy.
2: Well, I mean, the voters who um, sent Orbán back into office have been vindicated in terms of the response to the, um, electrom- the electoral victory because, you know, you can't play this double game when at the same time that the European Union is making all the right sounds, and, you know, waving the flag for sovereignty when it comes to talking about Ukraine mm. and, you know, let's face it, pretending like it, um, you know, talking, using words like democracy and importance of that and pretending that it cares about that. And then the minute a democratic election takes place in which the result, and much like Brexit, much like Trump, much like lots of the things that have happened in um, the last uh, five, six, ten years, um, they then throw their toys out of the pram, yeah. and so if you're a Hungarian voter who voted for Orbán, <laughs> you'd say, "Well, see, this is what I this is what I was talking about." And it's also the fact that, like you mentioned, Italy and and Greece, what the European Union, the kind of its its almost its flagship kind of moves at, at, in the last few years have been to kind of be financially punitive, mm. um, and tie that into when countries don't do what they want, whether it's in relation to immigration, whether it's in relation to the way they manage their finances, or with Hungary, what kind of social policies they have, yeah. um, that, that that the the consequences, well, we'll either charge you or we'll withhold funds. And particularly in relation to Hungary after, and, and indeed with Italy, after the period of the pandemic, when we know that lots of countries in Europe that aren't as well off as um, some of the kind of the big EU members have suffered, that that is going to have a real knock-on effect for the way in which voters make decisions. But I mean, There's also just, it's, you know, as Tom says, Hungary is not certainly not perfect in relation to press freedom, in relation to other, um, you know, free speech. Orban has proved himself to be a particularly punitive and um, untrustworthy protector of citizens' rights and journalists' rights, and you can oppose that. But, you know, there is this sort of weird... Positioning of other EU members as if they are kind of paragons of virtue. You know, no one talks about, like, for example, if you want to look at some of the nations' approach to women in relation to abortion, or what about France's approach to kind of religious freedom? Or you know, there's lots of things wrong with lots of countries. I think they pick which kind of nations they want to pick on, and it's quite clear that Hungary has been a thorn in the side the European Union, not because they give that much of a crap about what kind of policies they have about LGBT people, but because the sentiment in Hungary has been generally anti-EU, despite mm. them being this kind of weird thing, despite being a member for a very long time. So it's, it's quite clear what their opposition is, but there's all this kind of... It's, if I was a member of the LGBT community, I'd be quite pissed off because it's almost being used as a sort of stage reason yeah. to wage a different kind of a war.
0: And... Finally, Tom, I mean, the we should bring in Ukraine a little bit. Yeah. Um, one of the attack lines against Orban before, and actually there's been a lot of this after the mm. election too, is that he's a kind of Putin stooge, a Putin yeah. apologist. I mean, we've obviously heard that before in relation mm. to every, um, you know, anti-EU movement or or um, or character.
1: Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, people, are, you know, within their rights to criticise a particular policy that Hungary pursued on this or anything else. But as is always the case with Hungary, the truth is so much more complicated. Now, yeah. obviously, it's um, tried to maintain what it, what it refers to, what the government refers to as a pragmatic relationship. They're obviously, like many European countries, heavily reliant on Russian fossil fuels. Also, certain deals in relation to their nuclear power plants and building new nuclear power plants are sort of reliant on Russia. And in relation to the Ukraine crisis, the line throughout from the government has been we will take... Uh, We will, you know, throw open the borders to Ukrainian um, refugees, but we're not going to allow, um, we're not going to send any weapons. We're not going to allow weapons to go through our territory because we don't want to be brought into a war that is not our own, Mm. essentially. And there's been a pretty robust exchange of words between Zelensky and Orban in, in recent days. So there's more complexity here. But of course, this just gets bracketed off as, you know, that Orban is the Putinist Trojan horse in Europe. Mm. And it's like this on all kinds of other things from Hungary, where it's there is plenty of things from a kind of progressive or liberal perspective that you would want to criticise the yeah. current government of Hungary about. But the problem is, is that people aren't critical or serious about those things. They're hysterical yeah. about these particular things. I mean, the phrase far right is applied to this government willy-nilly when that's just fundamentally not the case. Whatever it is, it's not... That you know, there's a, there are genuine issues, as Ella was alluding to, around kind of a properly free kind of media landscape. But again, the issues are a bit more subtle, mm. you know, than are often kind of presented around kind of questions of media ownership and allegations of corruption and all that sort of stuff. Um, and you know, the COVID crisis. You know, last in 2020, Hungary was referred to as the EU's first dictatorship when this. Again, um, law was passed that allowed them to rule by decree. But obviously that happened across Europe. Yeah. Um, and it was a bad law and it was anti-democratic, as all of them were. Didn't have as many safeguards as some. But again, this is what I think feeds into the atmosphere in Hungary, which is to say that this government is embattled. They're on, you know, and that they're being kind of, essentially that there's a culture war being waged against them. Yeah, And so it just, I think that level of kind of international hysteria, not criticism, but hysteria, mm. I think it's definitely something which has contributed to that quite remarkable um, return to power from that particular government. And the more shrill that the European elites or anyone else get about this particular country, its government, uh, the longer it's going to be able to maintain that level of support, I think.
0: Finally, let's talk about Black Lives Matter. The leaders of Black Lives Matter have been accused of appropriating the donations to buy themselves a $6 million luxury mansion in California, This isn't even the first time that questions have been raised about BLM's finances. I mean, last year there was a big story about Patrice Cullors, one of the leaders who had managed to acquire a string of luxury properties, um, each worth, you know, some of them worth in the multiple millions of of dollars. Um, Tom, I mean, this kind of story is going to sound very strange to people who have, I don't know, perhaps the mainstream view of Black Lives Matter, who think Mm. that this is a grassroots movement dedicated to fighting against police racism and police violence. That's never been the full picture, has it?
1: It's always been quite complicated for all kinds of different reasons, one of which is because, is Black Lives Matter a slogan or is it an organisation? Yeah. If it's an organisation, which organisation? So (laughs) a lot of the allegations have floated around Black Lives Matter Global Network Foundation, uh, which Patrice Cullors was until last year the CEO of and has been heavily criticised for some of her uh, particular decisions. Um, but then there's all these local chapters. There's yeah. other organisations. There's other wings. There's other kind of things under the, that particular umbrella as well of formal organisations. So all of this becomes very, very knotty. And then when you see things like this, so this particular mansion being purchased, um, the BLMGNF people saying that this was about cre- providing a space for activists and mm. for them to create content, also as a kind of safe house. But then again, there's... Criticism: of, Was this the right way to spend this money? Why? Why is the organization being so cagey about how money has been spent? And then yeah. you saw this um, piece in New York Magazine, the Intelligencer uh, section of the website, which has basically got its hands on some of the communications in response to their own inquiries, where they're kind of testing out whether this explanation has got holes <laughs> versus <laughs> this explanation. So we don't really know what's going on here. But it just it, and of course they've strenuously pushed back against any suggestion that uh, this money has been you know spent in an improper fashion and all the rest of it. Time will tell. But at the same time, I think it just speaks to the fact that Black Lives Matter is big business. Yeah. Um, and it has been ever since it kicked very quickly after it kicked off in 2014. It's been, it's been able to raise a lot of money from a lot of organizations. People have been biting their hands off to give them millions upon millions upon millions of dollars. It yeah. closed out 2020 with $60 million left over. Yeah, But again, you've seen this criticism, not just from the right wing press, as BLM founders have liked to present it, Um, But actually, even from their own chapters, just saying, where is this money being spent? How is this actually, where is this actually going? And why haven't we, why isn't there at least some accountability and Hmm. openness? And it just seems like they can't keep deflecting these questions in the way they have been up until this point.
0: It seems as if the kind of, um, almost the, the sheen around Black Lives Matter, the halo around Black Lives Matter might have put off criticism for a very long time. I mean, we are you know black lives matter's been around for a lot longer than than you know george floyd's um, death but you know we are n- nearly 2 years on from that um and it's only now that questions are really or penetrating questions are finally getting through
2: yeah. And I, and the whole thing that that most people who've been critical of Black Lives Matter all along, like us, have said that there is a difference between your average person who goes out on the street, wherever it is in America or the UK, with a Black Lives Matter slogan and wants to stand up against injustice or racism, which, you know, there's, there's not much to criticise or talk about there. I mean, it's just a political action taken by an ordinary person. And as Tom says, a kind of the other side of it which has indulged in and made its main political activity getting other big businesses to either sign up um or to you know put a black square up or to talk about you know use the kind of um the slogans and the rhetoric of anti-capitalism but yeah. in this very capitalist way um which was the kind of you know there was a lot there was lots of sort of right-wing panic about black lives matter being anti-capitalist and
0: marxist and
2: marx yeah, yeah. and you and it's <laughs> just you just delve just scratch the surface a tiny bit and you realize that that's um not the case i mean this mansion they they don't do themselves any favors so you know they talked about the fact that this particular mansion was going to be a safe house and that it was going to be sort of unknown location or whatever. And and then some people pointed out that Patrice Cullors and two other of the leaders had done a kind of... Um, sort of promotional video at the the place on the terrace with champagne, which I don't have a problem. I really don't have a problem with people buying mansions and drinking champagne. I don't think you have to be (laughs) like wearing a donkey jacket with holes in your tights to kind of be a legitimate um, left-wing activist. That's just ridiculous. But come on. And you know, the kind of things that are meant to be the creative enterprises that this mansion was meant to house was like ranged from poetry to music to urban agriculture and you know like it'd be very it'd be a very busy mansion as it sounds like so there is a you know you there is a, a dishonesty to a lot of this which and I think the the kind of the serious and negative side of it is that if there was ever anything positive about Black Lives Matter it was that there was at a particular time when something very obviously, you know, problematic for race relations happened in relation to George Floyd's um killing and the aftermath of it and how lots of American police responded to it. There was a genuine up, uh, you know, sense of something had to be done and lots of young people, particularly in America, taken to the streets. And that it's been caught up in this kind of very corporate, um, very safe, very sort of um Kind of, uh, as Tom says, big business friendly and sort yeah. of undisruptive format of um, Black Lives Matter, the corporation, is, I'm sure, will disappoint many people. But if you didn't know that that was happening from the start, then you haven't been paying attention to the fact that if Ben and Jerry's are kind of the main promoter of this, then it's not anything particularly radical.
1: <laughs> I think that's important. And it, it reminds you that, in a sense, there was nothing positive about this thing to begin with. I think Black Lives Matter, ultimate sort of, the way I sort of understand it is that this was a hijacking of a understandable kind of concern about the question of police brutality, a a positive anti-racist feeling amongst a lot of people, which got hijacked by this identitarian organization, which as it turns out was also potentially questionably run. That's essentially (laughs) how, where we've ended up. It's distorted the debate in a really unpleasant fashion. It's mainstreamed what were up to now relatively fringe kind of identitarian ideas around, around race and identity. Um, and I think, in, even though, as as Ella was saying, you know, for instance, Patrice Cullors, who was criticised a year ago for buying what like four properties to the you know cost of like over three million dollars or something like this, and in and of itself, that's just a sort of lame argument to go off to people because they've made some money out of their activism. It's worth pointing out that the uh, her argument is that uh, she actually hasn't drawn a wage from the Black Lives Matter um, Foundation for many years, and up until that point, she got a relatively modest amount. She's made this from all of the activities which swirl around it, you know, her yeah. book deals and her uh, production deals and all this kind of other stuff, et cetera. It's important to point that out, but even taking that as read and not trying to allege any kind of straightforward corruption or anything like that, you do have to ask the question who benefits from this kind of activism. Um, it's quite clear that um, these activists have benefited. It's been very useful to their profiles and to their bottom line. It's very clear that big business has benefited from it. Mm. Who have thrown their arms around this this message and this organisation because it's a, it's a means through which for them to essentially try and purchase some virtue and feel like they're doing good in the world. An era where capitalists in particular feel quite uneasy about the position in which they occupy. But it has not benefited one jot ordinary people. Yeah. You know, it's further divided. I think it's played a direct role in further dividing America, and also in terms of just essentially, in some cases, creating excuses for the kind of. Um, for the rioting and the violence which ripped through a lot of American cities in 2020 and beyond and leading to um, again a kind of pulling back of police and a a dreadful situation for a lot of people in very troubled black communities so whilst without wanting to get into the kind of weeds of what it has done where has the money gone who spent what etc on the broader scope I think this just reminds us that the legacy of this organization has been a dreadful one and that under the banner of radicalism and anti-racism it's basically only really benefited people at the top and if anything done a complete disservice to people of all skin colours at the bottom.
0: Thank you for listening to the Spike podcast. We're back every Friday and you can now watch us on video too. Check us out on YouTube or go via the Spiked website which is spiked-online.com. See you next time.